We are this morning <coughs> going to be continuing our series through the book of Second Peter. And so if you have your Bibles with you, and if you don't have one, there are some available at the back, uh, I would ask you to turn to Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2. But before we actually dive into the passage today, I want to take a moment to place things in context because it has been a little while since we last looked at Second Peter. This, for those of you who are following, is the fourth sermon in our series on Second Peter. And the first three sermons we looked at chapter one, which is where we titled the series Remember and Beware. Chapter one is the remember of, 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 of Second Peter. We're now into the beware. And we saw that that we, we have to remember the gospel. We have to remember the gospel. We have to remember what it means for our lives. That we've been given everything by God and through his word to live a godly life. Through knowing Jesus, we get his promises, and in particular, the promise of eternity to spend with him. Salvation. And then we saw that we need to live in light of the gospel. So our, our belief, our profession demands a response. If our hearts have really been changed, it demands a response. And doing so confirms the gospel is working in our lives. And finally, we saw that we need to have confidence in the gospel. We need to be sure of the gospel. Why? Because it's the very words of God. We can't stand on anything else but the Bible. If we try to stand on anything else, we're going to fall. And so now we're going to hit chapter 2. And if chapter 1 was the carrot, then chapter 2 is the stick. If what we saw in the first three sermons was encouragement to remember, now we're into the warnings. And this is really the center of 2 Peter. This chapter is really why Peter is writing the book. He wants us to beware. He wants us to be ready. And so as we prepare to read what God has to say to us, as we prepare to read the absolutely true, authoritative word of God, I want us to start by examining ourselves a little bit. Because we all come and we all bring to the Bible our own perceptions and biases and experiences. You see, often we're so loaded down by our cultural setting that, that words can often mean things to us that they don't mean to someone else. So when I say the word to you, false teachers, what comes to mind? And you don't have to answer this. I just want you to kind of picture in your mind, what comes to your mind when I say the word false teachers? Because this is distinct from false teaching, right? So false teachers versus false teaching. On a basic level, we, we can say a false teacher is someone who teaches something false or does false teaching. But I guarantee you that I have and probably will again teach you something false. So does that make me a false teacher? And everyone just runs out of the room. I mean, this is a pretty charged subject too, because what would you do if one of your elders, if Paul or Jeff or Steve or I came to you and said that your favorite Bible teacher, just picture your favorite Bible teacher, your Christian celebrity, was a false teacher, what would you do? How would you react? Have you ever asked yourself the question? And I think if we are honest with ourselves, we find that you know sometimes we have this tendency to swing one of two ways. And this is just general, as I think as humans, we like to kind of vacillate between extremes. Um, and paradoxically, sometimes we hold both such extremes simultaneously. Um, and the first of these, I would say, is best exemplified by the internet. So if you ever want to be depressed, just Google false teachers sometime. And you will find someone on their soapbox declaring for all to hear, usually on this really poorly formatted website, that everyone from John MacArthur to Joel Osteen and from Obama to the Pope are false teachers or the Antichrist or something of the sort. And my favorite part about this is usually how these blogs will almost inevitably start with some sort of pious statement about how they really care about these people before proceeding to grossly misquote them, take them out of context, 
and build their case for why we need to start a false teacher hashtag campaign. But on the other hand, on the other hand, you know, we're, we're often really slow to call people false teachers. I mean, when was the last, especially when it, when it crosses with our personal life, right? It's easy to throw stones at, you know, people way off in the distance that we have no cachet with. We have no, but, but when it crosses with our personal life, when our friend listens to someone, we're, we're, really, we're really slow to do this. When was the last time someone challenged you on who you're reading or what you're listening to? You see, it's easy enough to throw stones at Creflo Dollar. And, you know, I love that name, by the way. He couldn't have been anything but a prosperity teacher with that name. But, but when he says that Jesus died so that we could live in financial prosperity, like, you know, like it's easy to throw stones at him. It's easy to kind of say, well, you know, this guy's out to lunch. But how willing are we to look at our own, our own celebrities? And so before we start here, before we actually go to God's word, I want us to kind of clear our minds here of everything that we think we know about false teachers and prepare to listen to what God has to say about them. And, and so I want us to remember when we're talking here, you know, this is not me speaking. This is not Daniel making stuff up. This is God's words. These are the very words of God. And I also want to know, you guys to know, before we start, that I love you all. And you're all getting real nervous at this point. But I, I do want you guys to remember that, that I and the other elders want nothing less than God's best for you. And sometimes that means we need to talk about the difficult stuff. We pray over you guys, we cry over you guys, and because we love you, we need to talk about this. So before we open God's word, I'm going to pray one more time just to cover this with lots of prayer and then we're going to dive in. Father God, open us, open our eyes to your word. Speak your words through me. Lord, I pray that if I say anything that is not from you, it would just slip from everybody's minds. Lord, I pray that we would see you glorified here today. In the name I pray, amen. So, 2 Peter chapter 2. And many of the more astute of you may notice that the, that the, um, the bulletin actually said we're going to be doing verses 1 to 10. Uh, but I think Steve might be running off, running, rubbing off on me because I had to cut half the sermon last night because otherwise we would have been here for about two hours. So... Uh, we're going to be starting reading verses 1 to 3 this time. So starting at verse 1. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation is from long ago, is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And I want to draw our attention here as we look at this today to a few th key things that this passage has to say about false teachers. But again, I, as we do this, I want us to remember this is for our good. This is not a hardship this is good. And you know, since we often, I, I know I find this personally, I struggle to apply the word of God to my life. I mean, don't we all? We struggle to really apply the word of God to our life, to take them and turn that into action. A and the reason is often not because it's complicated or difficult to understand, though I think sometimes we pretend it is, but it's because it's messy. You know, when the word of God collides with our personal circumstances, things get really, really messy. So, the first thing I think from this passage that we, that we really need to notice is that the false teachers are coming. They're coming, and in fact, may already be here. And I don't want us to be naive on this point here. They've come in the past. Peter even makes the link to the Old Testament false prophets 
who used to go around Israel, if you remember reading any of the, any of the prophets or a lot of, um, of kings or chronicles, a lot of the history books of the Old Testament, there are these prophets who used to go around Israel saying, you know, everything's fine. We're good. We're good. Everything's good. There's no judgment. God's not going to judge you. You haven't abandoned him. Everything's fine. And they used to go around doing this. Meanwhile, you know, the real prophets were going around saying, God's judgment is coming. Watch out. You better repent. And the people listened to the, good, to the bad prophets, not the, the true prophets. And Paul, so false teachers are coming. This is why Peter is concerned that people make sure of their knowledge in light of and their life in light of and confidence in the gospel that we talked about in chapter one. We've got to hold fast to the gospel because they're coming. And the word but here in verse one, if you look like the, the verse one starts with a but. So it's the link between what we are looking at today and what we were looking in back in August when we last looked at First Peter. And whenever you see the word but in your Bible or in just in any time you're reading anything, it means that you need to understand what comes after the but is in direct opposition to what came before. So naturally, the first question we should ask about this passage is, well, what came before? If, if, if what we're talking about now is in opposition to what came before, what came before? So if we take a look at 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 19, it says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the light da day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men by the Holy Spirit moved, sp Holy Spirit spoke from God. So what's, what's this in opposition to? It's in opposition to the prophetic word of God. False teachers are in direct opposition to God. To the word of God. And we need to let the implications of this sink in for a sec. This is not some sort of minor intellectual disagreement we're talking about here. This is really serious stuff. We need to be able to identify and stop teachers, false teachers, a bit like, you know, airport screening needs to stop the people with guns coming onto the plane. Because, you know, there's serious consequences if you don't. On the other hand, as we notice, it's, it's a pretty hefty charge to level at someone, right? This is a weighty thing to say. If I say you are a false teacher, I am saying you are in direct opposition to God's word. That's, that's, that's not something we should say lightly. It's a bit like calling someone a terrorist, right? You know, there are people who throw the term around willy-nilly, like I mentioned about the internet, but there are serious connotations, both for the person that we're saying this to, and also for ourselves, because if you call wolf too many times, we all know the story, what happens? No one listens to you. The grammar of verse 1 actually implies people are bringing in ideas into the church. The word that's actually translated heresies in our passage here is actually neutral. We often think of heresies as being, you know, this big scary thing, right? But heresies is actually a neutral word here. It, it, it actually only refers to a school of thought or a faction. Y you could actually think of the, the Pharisees were a heresy of Judaism, if that makes any sense. Uh, they were a faction or a sect or of, of, of Judaism or philosophical position. But what makes this a problem here is that these are destructive heresies that are being brought in. So they're just not ideas. They're, so they're, first of all, they're ideas that are being brought into the church. And what's more, they're destructive ideas. And literally, heresies of utter ruin. Utter ruin. Nothing left. So what we are talking today is many people who claim to be of the body of Christ, who claim to be of the church, maybe someone in this room. Some of you are going to follow, some of whom it's going to lead to damnation. Let that sink in. This is going to happen. 
And if you remember when we started this series, we talked about how we have to remember the gospel, how we have to live it out. And Peter is urging his readers to do this not idly, because he wants us to be built up and ready so when they do come, not if, when they do come, we won't be swayed. And if you're close to Christ, and I don't mean this in a touchy-feely way, uh, I mean this if you really know what Jesus likes, if you're immersed in his word, if his spirit is in you, if your life reflects this, then you're going to spot these guys and gals a mile away. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 7, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. Like, if we're in Christ, if we really are in Christ, if we really are dialed into who he is and our life is submitted to him, we're going to spot this a mile away. And this plays out in maybe two ways, I I should say. Because... Um, it, we should, first of all, aspire to be like this, right? We should, we should aspire to have the gospel at the center of our lives. But maybe we should also listen to godly examples. I mean, when a man or a woman who is more mature in the faith c- than you comes to you and says, and, if their life, and their life reflects this, their life reflects that they that they following God with their whole heart, if they s- come to you and suggest that, you know, what you're listening to is maybe not good for you, Maybe we should stop and and listen instead of rejecting them out of hand. We need to prepare for the coming of false teachers by clinging to Christ now so that when they come, we're going to run to Christ, not from him. And this kind of brings us now here to what is probably, I think, the, the bulk of our passage here, the, the main point that, that Peter is, is trying to make at this point. And that's, that's the character of false teachers. What do they do? And the Bible says that I'm going to be held account to account for what I teach you. And we're all going to be held, those who aspire to be teachers are going to be held account for what they say. And you should all be testing what I'm saying. Like, don't take it for granted that I'm telling you the truth. Look at God's word. But when do I cross the line from error, I made a mistake, into being false teacher? And that's really what we're we're dealing with here today. And, 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 and as I've been studying this, there's, there's certain characteristics, and Peter highlights a few of them here, of false teachers that, that help us to spot them. Jesus said himself in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. And I think Steve actually mentioned this passage a few weeks ago. But inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits, or their character, or what they do. And a few weeks, Steve actually pointed out to us, if you remember, that that we're sheep, right? We're sheep. And do we know what wolves do to sheep? It's not not pretty. And now maybe I think it's easy for us to understand a little bit why the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy that we just went through are so important. Why they're so based on character. You see, I think what surprised me most when I started digging into this a few weeks ago is how false teachers are almost always described in the Bible in terms of what they do and what they tell others to do, not what they profess or say they believe. 
And I think this is an important distinction because while I have met, and I know from my own life, many people who say the right thing and do the wrong thing, I have yet to meet someone who does the wrong, says the wrong thing and does the right thing. By which I mean, you know, if I was to say to you, I believe the Bible is the word of God, it's the word of God. In other words, God is speaking when we read his word. But I never read it. You know, I just kind of wander around and be like, well, it's gathering dust on my mantelpiece. Well, one has to question whether either, whether I actually believe that it's the word of God or at the very least, my understanding of who God is. On the other hand, you're never going to find someone who says, you know, the Bible is just some weird book with a few possible moral teachings that maybe we should consider or not, if you feel like it. And then they devote themselves to studying it and submitting it to it and applying it to their lives. Have you ever met that person? No, they don't exist. And, and so Paul Peter here lists three character traits or things that false teachers do. And so if you ever see these things, the warning is you shouldn't be listening to the person. So the first thing, they deny the lordship of Christ. Verse 1 says, but false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And denying here implies action. This is not some sort of like minor doctrinal error. This is denying that God has lordship, lordship over our lives. This language is evocative of slavery that we are slaves to Christ. This is not like, this is not like you, you, don't, you don't be a slave and then say, well, I'm not a slave. No, you're a slave. Like, you're either a slave to Christ or you're not. Another way to say this is might, we might be say this as not taking sin seriously. And this is not about being legalistic here. This is about understanding God's standard. And Paul has something to say about our ownership in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And this recognition of, of God's lordship over our lives is, is central to the Christian faith. This is the living in light of the gospel. Remember we talked about that so this would have been two sermons ago when we looked at chapter one back in June. And false teachers inevitably reject God's lordship over their life. What does this look like? Well, we reject God's lordship when we ignore the Bible because we don't like what it says. When we go ahead and say, well, I'll live with my girlfriend because we're, f or say to someone else, go ahead and live with your girlfriend because we're afraid of offending them. Or that homosexual practice is okay because we have friends that are of that persuasion. Or we say it's okay for me to chase and fill my life with stuff because that's what everyone else is doing. God doesn't really have anything to say about what I do with my money or my time or my life. You know, he he blessed me with it. I'm blessed. And I don't want you to misunderstand me here. These things are sin and God hates sin. But that's why we need Jesus. We need to turn to him from our sin. And the things that we put in the place of God, in the place of his lordship over our lives, are as varied as the stars in the sky. They range from culture to circumstance, our feelings, our desires, but they all lead to the same place. Destruction. False teachers don't only, though, reject God's authority over their own life, they tell others to do the same. If we look at verse 2, it says, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, 
the way of truth will be blasphemed. And one of the key characteristics, I think, this is incredibly common if you start studying, looking at cults or, or false teachers in general, is, is, is they particularly reject the authority of Christ with regard to their sexuality and, and lead others to join them in this process. If you remember the first Corinthians passage I read just back, um, if you were to actually back up a few verses, Paul is explicitly talking about sexual immorality in that passage when he talks about how we're not our own. And the world translator here as, as sensuality actually refers to habitual sexual sin. But, but which sexual sin do you ask? Well, all of it. All of it. It just means all of it. Anything you can think of where the church is considered prudish in our culture, um, all of those just about are, se- are, are issues of sexual sin. There, there is a willfulness here that is not a one-time failing we're talking about. This is a lifestyle. This is a rejection of the authority of Christ. We're not talking about temptation. We're talking about, when we're talking about false teachers, we move from this is wrong and I'm struggling to cling to Christ to this is okay and I'm going to keep doing it and I'm going to tell others to do the same. I'm going to justify myself. And I want us to recognize too, this is not just a words thing here. I'm not talking about just saying things because I can stand up here and preach against all of the sensual evils and call hellfire and fi- damnation down on everybody. And then if I go and partake in all of these things immediately after I tell this to you, I'm leading by example, but, but maybe not in a good way. I mean, remember that familiar phrase, words are cheap. Yeah, so it's not enough to look at what someone says, we also need to see what they do and what they urge others to do. There was a, to make this kind of a more practical way, there was a blog that I read quite some time ago, and it was brought to, I brought to my mind again as I was studying this passage, because it, it, I guess what stood out, it stood out to me in particular. And, and this blog was, was commenting on an issue regarding homosexuality, and I, I don't want to kind of go in into it in detail, because the, the issue isn't maybe so important here. Um, but what does matter is they proceeded to argue that the Bible wasn't clear on the matter. <coughs> that because, all in, that all interpretations, rather, of the Bible are equally valid. And since the early church had lasting and severe lasting disagreements about the nature of God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, salvation, works, and faith, therefore we can just kind of let live. And the problem here is, is it's not true. And that's the first problem, it's not true. Um, I mean, there were indeed disagreements, but, but though the people who disagreed on a lot of these issues that they actually mention were called heretics. And you can actually read about some of the rebuttals to them in your Bible. Uh, in particular, um, we're, we're actually later in Peter, he actually talks about some of this. Paul also has a lot of words about some of these things. So in other words, it's okay. You can do what you want because the Bible doesn't have anything to say. About it, or at least it's not definitive, so we can, we can ignore it. Or at least it's not definitive in this area over here, so we can ignore everything else. And, and I want you to know that this person, who I was reading, this blog, has said many good and true things. In fact, they have written many books. They're a little bit of a Christian celebrity. And I know for a fact that some of you have read their books. But the best lies always have a certain amount of truth. Actually, they have a lot of truth and a little bit of falsehood. Because if there was a lot of falsehood and a little bit of truth, we'd recognize that they're false. I mean, brothers and sisters here, what Peter is talking about when he says that false teachers are going to rise up within the church and bring outside, from outside, destructive thoughts, He's talking about this sort of thing. These ideas are going to come in and they're in opposition to the gospel. They deny the lordship of Christ and many are going to follow. So that's the first thing they do. False teachers reject the lordship of Christ and they lead others to do the same. They tell others to do the same. Second example 
Second characteristic of, of fault te false teachers is that they exploit people for financial gain. If we look at verse 3, when it says the word exploit, it actually uses the word exploit in our passage here, or at least in the ESV translation. It's referring to how false teachers gain from the people who follow them. In other words, they make money off of their followers. They make money off of the gospel. It shouldn't surprise us at all, given the Bible has an awful lot to say about money. There's, um, there's few topics that the Bible has more to say about than money, um, and, and most of it is not good. Certainly with regard to our desires for it. There's an extra edge to this, though, in that the false teachers, false teachers exploit their followers to gain the money. So, so how does this play out in real life? What does, what does, this, what does this mean? Well, I don't know if you realize this, but the Christian book slash conference business generates an awful lot of money. A lot of money, a lot of money. I mean, just think for a second, personally, how much money you have spent on books and conferences in the last year. Just tally it up in your head. Multiply that by millions, because there's millions of Christians doing the same, and you've got a lot of money. And this is not even throwing in the ministry donations that we send to the various ministries and various things. We have the potential for a lot of profit. And I'm not claiming this is the case for every ministry. Like, like let's be clear here. Um, this is, or every conference or every book. In fact, I know some teachers who have purposely set up structures to take these things out of their control. There are some people who have, who have recognized that how dangerous this is to their own personal lives, and they actually make sure the money doesn't come to them or they don't have control over what conferences that they go to or what they speak at because, because, they, because they don't trust themselves. But let's not be foolish in saying that there are not quite a few teachers out there making a lot of money off of the gospel. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. There's a, there's a movie, it's a bit old now, 1976. It was actually 10 years before I was born, um, called The President's Men, all, sorry, all the President's Men. Uh, it's about the Watergate scandal. Who's here has heard of Watergate? Okay, so it's, it's almost a byword in our culture. It was a massive scandal where, um, where, where the U.S. government was like funneling money illicitly all over, all over the place. So, so this is, the, the issue here though is, there's this movie that was made about it, and, and at one point this, the source, and this is purely from the movie, not from, not from actual history, but the source, they have this source that the people investigating have this source, and the source is named Deep Throat. A and the Deep, Deep Throat says, says to them, follow the money. Follow the money. And this eventually brings down the Nixon administration when they follow the money. They figure out where the money's going. And just kind of to put this into practice a little bit, I, I attempted to follow the money for a few somewhat popular Christian teachers. And you'd be surprised at what I found. And I don't want you know I'm not talking abstractly here. There are teachers that I know for a fact that people are reading and people are listening to who are exploiting you. They built themselves multi-million dollar complexes. And what makes me force more sad about this is that in my very sampling, limited sampling of internet opinion on the matter, um, I wouldn't recommend you go sample internet opinion on the matter, it'll just depress you, but um, it seems to me that it's actually the non-Christians who get it, not the Christians. Or at least the professing Christians versus non-Christians, right? See, we as Christians should be hated by the world for what we say, but above reproach in what we do. But so often the problem is there's many teachers out there that we turn a blind eye to because they say the right things, but they're rightly criticized for how they live their lives. There was one person who I think put this particularly poignantly, and this is a non-Christian saying this, um, with regard to a popular teacher. And, and I, as I said before, I know for a fact you read their books. In summation, can we just use this as a rule of thumb from no now on? If a Christian speaker slash author slash minister has a private jet, that person is just saying whatever he slash she needs to say to make money. The teacher, this teacher, wants to make money and they found how to do it. Their angle isn't even magical or anything. People don't give cabillions of dollars to people who tell them stuff they want to don't want to hear or rather stuff that they need to hear. But they do give cabillions of dollars to people who will tell them stuff they want to hear. Prophets who are saying stuff that people need to hear don't tend to get rich. In Christian theology, they actually tend to get martyred or crucified. But prophets who figure out what people want to hear 
Oh, the sky's the limit. How much, how often do we ask the question? Number three, false teachers lie to justify what they do. They will exploit you with false words. They will say whatever they need to say and twist the Bible however they need to to justify their actions. And Peter's going to address some of this in chapter 3 where he comments on Paul's letters. He says in verse 15 of chapter 3, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all of his letters that he speaks in these uh, when he speaks in them of these matters there are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do with other scriptures because i want you guys to know that if you're determined if you want to you can make the bible say absolutely anything you want it to say. Anything. Anything. Enough things taken out of context and twisted can be used to justify just about anything. And this is why false teachers are in opposition to God's word. It's because they twist the words of God just as the serpent did in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? When confronted, they see things like, it's complicated. Not everyone can disagree. Or point to other parts of the Bible that are complicated to allow them getting off the parts that they maybe have more trouble ignoring. And I want to give two quick examples of this, this um, as we kind of hurdle towards a conclusion. One positive and one negative before we wrap up. So remember that story I was telling you about, about the blog, The Christian Celebrity? Well, they did a follow-up blog, because their first blog generated a little bit of a furor to clarify things. So how did they clarify? Well, instead of repenting, saying, I sinned, I messed up, they basically clarified that their personal views were that God instituted marriage between a man and a woman, and then proceeded to launch a counterattack, arguing that the church has done a poor job of loving the gay community. And they're right. Like, I, I want to understand, like, again, there's a lot of truth in this because we as the church have done an awful job, an awful job. And the hate and fear that has been directed towards this group is appalling. But they need to be pointed to Jesus, not told things are okay. Sin is still sin. And for us to suggest that the Bible is unclear on this matter is a lie. And the fact is that the blogger ignored the central problem with the first blog, which was not their personal views, but what they were telling people to do, which was ignore the word of God. They justified instead of repenting. You see, false teachers twist God's word to justify what they do. But good teachers... Good shepherds faithfully point people to the gospel even when it's hard. And they do so with their lives too when they mess up. They repent and live out the gospel. And I'm going to put them on the spot here because, uh, but I know one of the moments that I've probably been most impressed with Paul um, in my life is um, a few years ago, uh, and I'm not going to go into the details here, but before I was an elder, I actually had to approach Paul at one point because Paul had done something and, um, and I had to go to him and say, Paul, you're in sin. I didn't actually use those, those words um, exactly, but I was, I was maybe a little more diplomatic. But, um, but what you shouldn't have done, what you did. But it was the gist of it. And how do you think he reacted? The issue would have been something that would have been relatively easy to come up with a justification for. But instead, and, and, and this has always stuck with me, I've never actually told him this, um, but he confessed immediately and we prayed together. There was no lying, there was no excuses, there was no pointing out my own failings. It was just humble submission to the gospel instead of trying to twist things. You see, character matters. 
False teachers are not false teachers because everything they teach is wrong. Or even because some of the things they teach are wrong. In fact, most of the often what they teach is right. The problem is that the lives that they do teach, the things that they do and the things that they tell other people to do can destroy us. So as we kind of bring the train into the station here, I've got a few application questions that maybe let us move from the theoretical into the practical. What does this mean for my life? How does this change how I go about my day? So I've got three questions for you guys. And I want you guys to honestly ask yourselves these questions. Honestly ask yourself, am I doing this? So number one, are you watching your teachers? Do you examine their way of life? And this idea really challenged me. And as I've been studying this over the past few weeks, been studying this passage, been studying other passages, I just felt the weight of God for this issue and I was convicted that, you know, I don't often do this. I don't often do this. I'm happy to kind of do intellectual discussions, but how often do I really examine the way of life of those that I submit my life to? I mean, do you guys see the work of the gospel in Paul and Jeff and Stephen in my lives? Do you? Do you ever ask the question, are we consistently pointing you to Jesus? Do we show generosity or are we consumed with money? When we fail, do we admit our faults and cling to the gospel or do we just try to justify? Have you ever asked the question? I mean, this is something that we as elders need to be asking each other ourselves daily. Um, and the boys actually uh, called me out in something last, last time we actually met for, for, for a meeting. But, but it's not enough for us to police ourselves. You guys need to be asking these same questions. And I'm serious here, deadly serious, because this is not a laughing matter. This is not some joke. This is not some minor disagreement. There's a reason why 1 Timothy lays out the qualifications as he does. Because I point you to Jesus with my life as well as my words. But let's not forget, as much as the word of God has given the church elders to shepherd and help and guide, we're still fallible. And we need you to be watching us. Because, because I'm going to be perfectly honest here, the most likely place for a false teacher to arise in the congregation is in the elders. Certainly the most dangerous place. What about other prominent members of the congregation? Other leaders within the church? How often do you ask the question? Are you vigilant? Are you looking? Because they're coming. False teachers will come. And in fact, they're probably already here. So that's number one. Are you watching your teachers? Number two. And now we're getting into the really uncomfortable stuff, I think. Who are your teachers? You see, your teacher is the person you listen to. They're the person you trust, not the person who has the title. So who's yours? Maybe it's your friend. Maybe someone inside the church or outside the church. Maybe there's some Christian celebrity like John MacArthur, B John Piper, Beth Moore, any and others I could name. Have you ever asked question one about them? Is it even possible to do so? Are your elders really your elders? Or do you measure everything that we say by something someone else has said? Now, you should be measuring what we say by the word of God, but I'm talking about other teachers. Maybe someone who will tell you what you want to hear instead of what you need to hear. 
And if you cannot say with confidence that you see the gospel working in the lives of, of those you submit to, yourself to, then you need to treat them skeptically. This does not mean that we, we stop reading. I'm not against reading or stop listening to, to sermons. It just means that we don't let them be our teacher. We don't give them our full trust. Because I know and I want you all to hear that th this is coming, as I said at the beginning, I love you guys. I really do. You're my family, and I and the other elders want nothing less than God's best for you all. But there are people in this congregation, and I'm not going to call out the particular names because, because I want us all to look. I want us all to examine ourselves. But there are people in this congregation who I know are listening to celebrity teachers who are exploiting you with false lies. They're marked by greed and they're pointing you away from the gospel. It's happening. It really is. This is not a theoretical discussion. Do you think the wolves are going to come out and say, look at me, I'm a wolf? No. They sneak into your life with nice platitudes and catchphrases. They pretend to care, but they don't. They're just in it for what they can get out of you, be it the money, the influence, the power, greater social status. And so I beg you, take an honest look at who your teachers are. Should they be your teachers? And finally, number three, are you in danger of becoming a false teacher? Do you aspire to teach, to exercise influence over people in this church, but your words and lifestyle don't match that aspiration? Things got real silent now. You see, I suspect that very few false teachers think of themselves as false teachers. They're just driven, and we're going to see this later uh, in 2 in Peter, by their desires and their passions, and they twist God's word to suit their purposes. But they're as much deceived often as their followers. Are you a teacher? Are there people in this congregation, or maybe outside it, who look to you for wisdom, who look to you to teach them. And yet your words and lifestyle are not pointing them to the gospel. <laughs> do you teach people to complain? Is the fruit of the work of the Spirit in your life, or do you pontificate catchphrases and veiled criticisms, leading people to be dissatisfied, all the while ignoring how much grace you need in your own life? Are you taking worldly ideas and selling them as truth? Do you know how seriously God takes this? And <laughs> as part of my preparation for this sermon, uh, so I was reading up an awful lot on all this stuff um, and also on every celebrity Christian teacher under the sun, and it gets a bit depressing. I'll be honest, I was a little depressed. Like you, you see all the lies out there and you think, how can the truth prevail? How can the word of God prevail against so much darkness that are so popular? And this is where we need to go back to the word of God because it's the source of our truth and our hope. So let's turn back to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. And I want to read our passage again and then go a little bit further. But false teacher prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation is from long ago, is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And if we just stopped at this part, you know, things are looking real bleak. 
But Peter continues, and, and I want to give us a glimpse of where we're heading and where we're, we're going to be heading next time we come back to Second Peter. Verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, and when he brought a flood upon the world of God, ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued, ri- rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God is going to judge false teachers, but the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He knows his sheep. He knows his sheep. And he is bigger and he is greater and he is more powerful and his truth is more sure than all of the lies that are out there. And there's redemption for those who call upon his name. Let's pray. Father God, Your word is sure. Your truth is eternal. Your love is everlasting. Your grace is without end. God, we come before you and we weep for all the darkness and lies that have penetrated your churches here and across the city and across the nation and across the world. Father God, we know from your word that you're mighty to save, that you will rescue your people. And so we ask that, Lord. I pray you'd help us to look deep into our hearts, Lord, and question us. Because your word is a two-edged sword, Lord. I pray you would cut our hearts here today. That we would turn to you, not from you. We would cling to your gospel, cling to the salvation that comes because we don't measure up, but because you measured up. And submit ourselves to you as Lord of our lives. Pray, Lord, now your hand would be over each person here. Point us to you. Rescue us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.